Okay, so what we're going to be talking about today is what I hope, I hope is going to be something that will really alter or refresh your perspective on the Jewish calendar. When I say Jewish calendar, I mean all the Jewish holidays, right? Just, we could talk, I have to see how much time we're going to have to see if we're about to talk about the overall structure of the calendar and how it's worked and how it's built and how it interacts. But what I wanted to talk about, the basic goal of, of the presentation is to try to, you know, bridge the ritual to the meaning, you know. We could chew matzah. I know we could chew matzah. Uh, you know, one guy could be chewing matzah, and to him it's a wonderful spiritual experience. And it's an experience where he's kind of like back in Egypt. He's on the banks of the Dead Sea, and he's reliving the Exodus, you know, and he sees Moses, and he, he he's his his faith is just augmented. That could be one guy. The other guy's chewing crackers. They're doing the exact same thing. They're doing the exact same thing. One of them it's a meaningless ritual, and one of them it's a way to relive the most momentous occasion in the history of mankind. So what I'm going to try to do today is I'm going to try to um, very quickly because we have to do the entire calendar, very quickly go through the entire Jewish calendar and to try to explain the roots of everything that we do. So we know we fast in Yom Kippur, and we light candles on, on, uh, on, the, on Hanukkah, what we do in Purim, Rosh Hashanah, all the things that we do, that we know that we do, why do we do it? What's the significance behind it? What are the themes behind what we do? And to try to infuse the holidays with meaning. And the goal is that after the presentation, when you experience a Jewish holiday, it's not just what they taught you in grade school or what you grew up with in your house or what you learned uh, as, uh, you know, as you were being introduced to Judaism. It's also about reliving something momentous. And it's about, it's about, it's about meaning, it's about spirituality, it's about growth. It's an opportunity to become a greater person and to transform yourself. When the Imani gives us holidays, it's different than the holidays that we have in celebrating America. In America, someone dies, Washington, Lincoln, Roosevelt, right? You name the president, right? There is idea of memorialization. So Memorial Day, we have uh, Veterans Day, Labor Day, all these days that are memorializing events or people. In Judaism, we don't have any memorialization. The word Torah means instruction. Instruction. The word Torah means instruction. The Torah is instructions. Instructions for what? Instructions for living. What, what kind of living? The best life possible. The Almighty gave us a book and a tradition that will enable us to become the happiest, most successful, most balanced, most greatest people as individuals and as a, and as a community. That's what the Torah is. It's instructions. The holidays are also instructions. They're also opportunities to become a greater person, to improve ourselves, character perfection, ethical refinement, becoming a greater person, becoming a light to the nation, <laughs> becoming or goim, all these things that we're used to saying, that Judaism is about tikkun olam, fixing the world, fixing ourselves and fixing the world around us. Holidays, like all other mitzvahs, are opportunities to do just that. So, 
that's the overall idea. The idea is we're going to go through and we're going to talk a little bit about the roots of the holiday and what are the themes, the, the, the overarching themes of the holiday. And truth be told, we could speak for three classes on just Pesach. But we're going to try to just give the, like, you know, just the snapshot, just the image, the picture of what the holiday is, what are the roots, uh, and, and what's the meaning, and how is that, uh, how is that manifested in the uh, practices. So we say, Judaism does not believe in memorialization. Our holidays are not like the uh, holidays of the Gentiles. They're instructions. But more specifically, they are spiritual realities. And what I mean by this is like this. Lincoln was born on whatever day he was born. And Kennedy was born on whatever day. And September 11th was September 11th. And so whenever we have September 11th, 2014, 2015, we kind of memorialize that day. And November 22nd is the day that Kennedy was shot. Right? And July uh, 19th was the day that the Americans purportedly, allegedly, probably didn't, but claimed to have landed on the moon. And uh, this year, you know, they'll say, oh, this has been, uh, what, uh, 45 years uh, since the Americans landed on the moon. Right? And they'll announce that on the radio in a, in a month. In Judaism, not only are they not memorializations, their instructions, but also the way the instructions work and the connection between the event that kicked it all off. So like the event of leaving Egypt, kicked off uh, the holiday Passover. The event and the spiritual entities that existed, spiritual energy that was created and existed during the time of the event, that contributes to that reality of that day. So for example, if Passover was a time for redemption, the Jewish people as individuals and as a collective unity, a collective unit, were redeemed from salvation, the, that influenced uh, the holiday or the days of Passover to be times that are auspicious for redemption. So when we reach Passover again, 2014, 2015, 2012, 1992, when you come to Passover you're able to engage in the same spiritual energy that existed uh, at the time of, of, of the Exodus. So the idea, this is a remarkable idea. The idea being is that uh, time, we view time as a loop, as non-linear, as recurring, and events, things that happen, create stations, spiritual stations, and these spiritual stages are realities. And these realities are forever going to exist, going to permeate the air during those days. So hence, when we come to the 15th day of Nisan, the day of Passover, right, we enter a world, a new world, a spiritual world, where the atmosphere is different, the oxygen is different, the, the forces, the forces of physics are different. Right? The, the laws of spirituality change. Why? Because that is the reality that we entered into. Uh, as a way to try to illustrate this idea, you know, we have um, at the end of the prayer every morning, there's uh, the psalm, the psalm of the day. Shir Shalim is one of the psalms. So every all seven days, each each one of the seven days, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Shabbos, they each have their own psalm. And in the commentaries, in the books of our sages, they tell you 
how every psalm corresponds to the energy of that day. Sunday has an energy. Why? Because if you go back to the original Sunday, the Sunday of creation, what was created on Sunday influences the kind of spiritual world that exists on Sundays. And therefore, Sundays are different than Mondays. And therefore, the prayers associated with Sundays are different than the prayers associated with Mondays. And um, so much more so, this is even a step further, there's a Talmud. The Talmud says, in Shabbos, it's the name of the book, Talmud is a, is a compilation of 39 books. So one of the books is called Shabbos. And guess what it talks about? What do you know it talks about? Shabbos. Very good. So it talks about the different children being born on different days. A child born on Sunday will have a certain inclination to a certain characteristic. And on Monday will have an inclination towards a different characteristic. And every day... Because that's that energy that exists that day. And today, what, what today is uh, Wednesday night, there's a certain kind of spiritual energy that's different than any other time. Now for us, we can sense it because it doesn't smell different. It doesn't, it doesn't, you can't taste different. You can't measure it with any physical tools. But in spiritual realities, it exists. So similarly with holidays. So that, that's on a micro scale on days of the week, but on holidays as well. Shabbos, when we experience Shabbos, when we say the Kiddush on Friday night in Shabbos, what we are really doing is we're reliving the experience of the original Shabbos. Hence, Shabbos, it could be just the day where you're not allowed to use your phone, or a day where you, should, you, know, you shouldn't you know, you should go, go to synagogue and eat the meal. It could be a very physical day. It could be a chewing crackers day. Or it could be a day where we exist on the first week of creation, right? awing, marveling with awe at God's creation. Yeah, two people doing the same things. People look at the exact same. They have the same Shabbos table. They have the same Shabbos candles. They have the same Shabbos shul. Everything. One person is able to bridge the ritual to the meaning. So to him, he's in a new location. He's not in Houston, Texas. He is in the cradle of civilization, the Garden of Eden. He's with Adam and Eve. He's there at the first Shabbos of creation looking at this wonderful world that the <coughs> Almighty gave us. The other person is just you know, not using his phone, wondering what's happening with the World Cup. We'll find that after Shabbos. Two people doing the same things, but one of them made that connection, one of them didn't. Yes, any all questions are welcome. That's a connection with time, right? Mm -hmm. Is there a geographical connection too? Absolutely. Like if you were on the other side of the world in Israel at this very date and time. Ooh, I love it. Absolutely. That's what we say. We say that Israel is the holy land. What does that mean? It's land is land is land. Right? Spiritual energies exist in different places differently. You know? We have um, the idea of uh, spiritual. I don't want to get too Kabbalistic because I don't really understand it myself. And I usually refrain from teaching Kabbalah because A, I don't know much about it myself. But because I don't think it's something which should be taught in the masses. Either way, we'll put that aside for a second. Uh, what we are told, and the reason why I can tell is because my grandfather told it to me, is that the way the Almighty influences uh, is with certain spiritual energies called angels. And if you remember um, Jacob, 
Jacob, in the middle of Genesis, he goes back, he crosses over a river, he's traveling his family, he goes back, crosses over a river, and has a battle with a man. Right? You open up the books of the Talmud, this man wasn't just a regular man. He struggled the whole night. Till finally at the end, the guy saw he could, he could, he could be successful, he hit him on his, on his hip, and it, it, Jacob was, uh, was, was thenceforth hobbled. Right? Remember that story? He wasn't fighting with a man at all. According to the Talmud, he was fighting with the Saroshel Esav, with the angel of Esav, which is a certain spiritual force of the Gentiles. And Jacob, being the father of the Jewish people, being, so to speak, could be said, the founder of the family that is Judaism, you know, all his children are the separate tribes of, of Israel. That was the struggle of good and bad, the ultimate showdown between, between, uh, how you doing, Betty? Good to see you. I went to the other temple. Oh, you Betty. I went to Bethel. Oh, oh dead. <laughs> That's tomorrow night. <laughs> Hi, Rabbi. So the battle, we're talking about the battle that, that, I, that Jacob had with the angel of, of Esau. And we're saying it, a very deep idea. Um, Ju- Judith, we said Judith? Judith, yeah. Judith asked, is there a different spiritual reality in different locations? Latitude and longitude, wherever you are in the world, do spiritual, uh, are, is the spiritual reality different? And the answer is absolutely yes. How so? So I was mentioning, so the, 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 every nation, every country has its own spiritual conduit that connects them to the, to, to the Almighty's influence. That is, when you get spiritual energy, spiritual life, the spiritual pipelines that give life to the world, right? in the United States, they go through a certain conduit. We don't know what the name of the conduit is. It's a certain angel, certain spiritual reality. Right? Asav had his. Rome had theirs. Probably every country in Europe has theirs. And that's why people are different. People are different because they're influenced by, by, by where, they, where they're from. What about Israel? We're told in the verse, Israel doesn't have an, an intermediary. The eyes of God are upon the land of Israel from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. The spiritual energy that the land of Israel gets is totally different than everyone else, and it's a totally different kind of, of spiritual energy because it goes straight from the Almighty. So yes, different times have different energies and different locations have different energies as well. That's why, like a, a Shabbos is different than a Tuesday, and Israel is different than Morocco. Okay, so let's start with the very first holiday of the year. What's the first holiday of the year? Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah. Why, what happened, Rosh Hashanah? What are we celebrating? What are we commemorating? What event kicked off Rosh Hashanah? Rosh Hashanah is the what? Beginning of the year. Why is the beginning of the year? Was it just arbitrarily chosen? Was it like July, you know, January first? It could be January first. It could be May thirty first. It could be uh, February twenty sixth. Is that why? Why is Rosh Hashanah special? Well, what's special about Rosh Hashanah that makes it the head of the year? So the answer is, is because that is the day that Adam was created. The world was created on the 25th day of Elul. We have Hebrew months, 12 Hebrew months. Tishrei, Cheshmer, Kislev, Teves, Shrat, Adar, Nisan, Ir, Sivan, Tamas, of Elul. Elul is the last one. The first one is Tishrei. 
The world was created on the 25th day of, Tish, of, of Elul. Day 6 was the first day of Tishrei. And what happened to day 6? Adam was created. Hence, Rosh Hashanah is the birthday of Adam. And even to a further extent, Rosh Hashanah is the birthday of mankind. So the year that mankind has begins with the first day of mankind. So when we look at Rosh Hashanah, it's not just an arbitrary day that was chosen like January 1st. It could have easily been February, February 1st or you know, June 15th. Rosh Hashanah is the first, it's the time of renewal, specifically because it was the first. And that has the energy, the energy that it just Rosh Hashanah is the, is the idea of renewal. Because a new, a, new, a new species was created on that day. Adam, and the focus of the world, which is Adam, that's when it started. So it's the birthday of Adam, it's the beginning of the, of the mission of the world. But on the deepest level, it is also the beginning of God's kingdom. Now that may sound strange. Wait a minute. God's kingdom had a beginning? I thought that God was eternal. I thought that God was infinite. I thought God didn't need anyone to make him a king. Rabbi, what are you talking about? Are you saying heresy? Are you saying nonsense? Are you saying things that are contrary to Torah? So let me qualify what I meant. There's the idea of Ein Melech Belo Am. You cannot have a king without constituents. God, before he created the world, was just him. He was nothing else. When God created time, God created matter, God created energy, God created laws of physics, right? the purpose of that was to create a man. Now, what's special about a man, you might ask? Well, man has free will. Hence, man can accept God or reject God. Animals don't have that capacity to do that. Hence, man is made, but Salem Elohim, man is made in the image of God. Man and God share one thing. They can both make decisions. No one else else can make decisions. A rock cannot choose to do do anything else, right? A dog cannot do anything against its instinct. Only man and God can make decisions. And God's uh, interest in creating the world was to have man. And that man should accept upon himself, as per his own free will, the idea of God. Hence, we are the only ones that could make God's kingdom bigger or smaller. If we, with our free will, decide, choose, based upon our own, our own, our own tools of decision making, we decide to accept God, right? it's as if there's independent verification. There's an entity that had a choice to go to reject God. Well, we could choose. We have free will. We could choose to reject God. And we chose to accept God. That is the expansion of God's kingdom. And Adam, on day one of his existence, Adam testified to the existence of God. And we have lots of Talmudic sources. I don't get too bogged down by this. But the Talmud says that Adam got up and said, you know, he bowed down to God, accepted upon himself God's dominion. Hence, Rosh Hashanah is also the beginning of God's dominion. So in essence, Rosh Hashanah is a very significant day. Why? Because, sorry, I just want to write down a note here. Birthday of purpose. Because of Adam. Now, 
That's what happened in yesteryear. What about today? What about Rosh Hashanah today? When we celebrate Rosh Hashanah, what are we really doing? The answer is, what we're doing is we're making a pit stop at that spiritual station. We are making a pit stop. We are renewing ourselves. This was a time where Adam was created. We'd come back to this point every year and we'd get recreated. We get an opportunity to start fresh on an individual level. On a more macro level, it's a time where the world's purpose gets refreshed. The purpose of the world is that man should independently testify to God's existence. That purpose, right? once again, that was started in Rosh Hashanah. And lastly, it's the time where God's kingdom is renewed. It's as if a new administration comes in. This was the day of God's, of God's kingdom. This is the day of God's kingdom, and now we're starting it from, from scratch. Starting it anew. Now you tell me, what happens... What happens when a new administration takes over? Well, it gets rid of the old. Sometimes it keeps a lot of the old stuff. Right? A lot of staffers, a lot of state department people, they all stay there. They're lifers. So what happens? What's the, what does the administration do when they move in? Change everything. Before they change everything, what do they do? Out the old. They make appointments. They decide well, who they they make appointment. who's going to be there. But how do they decide? Gonna be in there, in there. How do they decide? Well, who do they owe favors to? <laughs> There's a reflection on the sign. The right first there. thing they do is they analyze. They investigate. They check and they see, is this person <laughs> going to be a positive or a negative for the administration? Every person is evaluated. Right. On Rosh Hashanah, God's kingdom, so to speak, is renewed. God's kingdom gets renewed. What happens when a king renews his kingdom? He has to do judgment. He judges the people. Hence, on Rosh Hashanah is a time where we're judged. Rosh Hashanah is a time where we're judged. So, on one hand, it's the, the, how the themes are all intersecting here. On one hand, it's a time for a tremendous opportunity of renewal. It's a time where we could shed our previous life, our previous identity, our previous uh, values, our previous uh, things that we hold dear and important in life. We could say, you know, I'm rededicating my life, rededicating it to a higher cause. We could do that. That's why Rosh Hashanah is all about prayer and self-reflection. On the other hand, it's a time we have to worry. Because right now we're being evaluated. Are we positively inf- uh, influencing the world? Are we doing? Are we being a loyal subject? Are we being a positive asset for God's for God's kingdom, or God forbid, are we negatively impacting? And the judgment specifically lies in what are we doing to contribute to God's kingdom? Are we helping? Or, God forbid, are we making it worse? So that's Rosh Hashanah. And you'll notice, all the practices, all the rituals, 
all the prayers are all talking about these ideas. Man being created, the world's purpose, right? God's kingdom, right? the whole prayer is about God's kingdom. The practice that we say, you know, we want, we want a new year, we're being judged, right? We try to, we, you know, we try to, we try to, you know, return, return to the Almighty, right? We have the shofar. The shofar is about, Maimonides says, shofar is about waking us up. Waking us up, we have an opportunity. The greatest opportunity that you could ever have comes over Hashanah. We could recreate ourselves. It's a time where man was created from new, from scratch. We too could reinvent ourselves in Rosh Hashanah. That's Rosh Hashanah. You'll notice all the rituals, all the prayers, all everything, all the practices of Rosh Hashanah all fall in line with, the, with, with these themes. Uh, quickly, the next uh, thing that we see in Rosh Hashanah is Tzom Gedalia. The day after Rosh Hashanah is the, is the minor fast day. We'll notice that the, in Judaism, in the Jewish calendar, there's six fast days. Two of them are major fast days, and two and four of them are, are minor fast days. What's the difference between a major and a minor fast? A major fast starts the night before. A minor fast begins in the morning. Uh, major fasts are only Yom Kippur and 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 Tishabah, right? Tishabah, exactly. Ninth day of Av. What is that? The second one. The ninth of Av. The ninth day of Av. It's the day where the temple will destroy. Both temples will destroy. We'll get to it. Hopefully, hopefully. Okay, now, on the day after Rosh Hashanah, we have the fast, minor fast day called the Tzom Gedalia, the fast day of Gedalia. And what happened on this day was, that the, after the destruction of the, te- of the first temple, so Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians come, they destroy the temple, uh, Jerusalem is uh, destroyed, and the Jewish people, uh, in large part, head east towards Babylon, where they spent for the majority of the next uh, 1,500 years. The Jewish people were centered in Babylon. But Nebuchadnezzar appointed a Jewish governor by the name of Gedalia ben Achikam, and he was the last official remnant of Jewish sovereignty in Israel. And on this day, the day of the fast of Gedalia, he was assassinated. And because that was the final blow, the final nail in the coffin of Jewish sovereignty over Israel, it kind of symbolizes the end of an era, the era which is the ideal era, Jews living in their uh, in sovereignty with a temple in Israel, and this assassination ended it all, therefore we mark it with a minor fast. And what you'll notice again and again, that the fast days in Jewish life, uh, besides for two so four out of the fast days are fast days that are centered on the temple. So we have, for example, on the tenth day of Tavis, we have the time where the siege around Jerusalem was was began. We have the seventh day of Tammuz where the walls were breached, and we have the ninth of Av when the temple was actually destroyed, and we have this holiday, the holiday of Gedalia, Gedalia ben Achikam, where the last Jewish leader was assassinated. And the centrality of the temple is something that I think today modern Jews overlook. How so, Rabbi? If you read through the Torah and you read through all the mitzvahs, the majority of the mitzvahs are only applicable either in the temple or during times when the temple existed. We could perhaps say that the majority of Judaism or Maybe even a little stronger. Judaism 
exists only or exists in its true form only when there is a temple. Jewish life was centered in, in the temple. Judaism had to be recreated, remodeled, refurbished after the temple was destroyed. Like our prayers, for example. Prayers are such a big part of our, of, of, of our, of our Jewish life. But they were just a recreation of the, of the temple sacrifice schedule. That's what they are. We're trying to sort of speak, take a certain remnant, a certain leftover part of our temple Jewish life, and say, let's have, the, let, let's, let's have this memory of it, so to speak. Let's try to cobble together and create a Judaism out of the ashes. So that's why, but for us, we, we, only, we only know one kind of Judaism. We don't know the idea of God dwelling in our midst. That's such a foreign idea for us. It's foreign. Only Judaism we know is the watered-down version. Albeit quite over, uh, over you know, overarching and quite exhaustive, but it's still a watered-down version. True Judaism is with the Temple. And everything, every milestone in the undoing of that life is marked by a fast day to reflect on our state and our sorry state of existence and the sorry state of our religion and to pray and the special prayers formulated to try to bring back Judaism in its full splendor. So that's the, 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 uh, the minor fast days and we'll, you know, we'll uh, talk about them a little bit more uh, individually when we reach them. What about Yom Kippur? So Yom Kippur is a day. What happened to Yom Kippur? Anyone knows what happened Yom Kippur? Yom Kippur was the day where Moses finally got convinced the Almighty to forgive the Jewish people for the sin of the golden calf. It was the first time where atonement was granted. Hence, it created a certain spiritual reality where atonement is granted for people that do tshuva. So to this day, when we come to Yom Kippur, we're able to grab onto that. We're able to achieve atonement for our sins. And that's why today we have to utilize. Because it's a tremendous opportunity that comes only once a year. If it came once every 70 years, we would value it a lot more. In fact, if it came once every 70 years, we would each wish each other, I'd have a good day, have a good night. You should be lucky to see Yom Kippur. It comes every year, we take it for granted. Yom Kippur is the day where the Almighty forgave the Jewish people. It's the day where the Jewish people were, were reinstated as the Almighty's nation. And it's a day for us today to once again be reinstated. And to once again have our sins washed away. And whitewashed and cleansed. And purified. So that's what Yom Kippur is. But let's go a little bit deeper. Who's ready to go a little deeper? That was ready? Yeah. That's the verse that talks about Yom Kippur, and I'll say it again in English. For on this day, the Almighty will atone for you, to purify you from all your sins. Close to Hashem you shall be purified. On this day, the Torah describes us as being close to Hashem. We're close to Hashem. Normally we're distant from Hashem. This day we're close to Hashem. Now tell me, Rabbi, Wobi, what does it mean to be close to Hashem? What does it mean to be distant from Hashem? The answer is that we have something called the Yetzirah, which is our physicality, which is our 
materialism, which is our evil inclination. And that cloaks over our soul and inhibits our soul and suffocates our soul and makes our soul unable to have its true its true nature come forth. Now, soul in its true nature is so close to God, so much so that it's described as being hewn, a soul being hewn out, outside of God's chair, so to speak. Think about how pure that is. Think about how close to God your soul is. Your soul is the closest thing to God, probably besides for angels. And it's, it's right there. It's just that there's a huge barrier between that. So that's why we're distant from God, because we have a barrier separating our soul uh, from uh, revealing what it really, truly is. What happened to Yom Kippur? Yom Kippur were close to God. Now how do you get close to someone that you're very close to? Right? If the Berlin Wall is separating you and someone else, it doesn't matter, you can be 10 feet away from each other, you're still very far. All of the year, we're very close to God on one hand, and then on the other hand, we're very far from Him. How so? We're close to Him because our soul, which is part of us, is the thing most similar to God, besides for angels. On the other hand, we're so, so, so distant because we have a thick wall, 10 feet of iron and steel separating us from Him. Yom Kippur, close to Him. Yom Kippur, temporarily the barriers are lifted. Temporarily, we're back in our natural state. Our soul is unsheathed for 24 hours. Yom Kippur, we're like angels. We were, we're, we're, we wear white right. in Yom Kippur. We don't eat on Yom Kippur. We say special angel, angelic prayers on Yom Kippur. Because in Yom Kippur, we are indeed like angels. We're similar to God. We don't have those silly physical inhibitions. We're close to God. Think of Yom Kippur as the day where the prisoners in the prison are allowed to escape because all the doors are open for 24 hours. A lot of prayer. You'll notice the prayers all, all are in line with this idea. Because that's the verse. We're close to God. We're all prisoners. The whole year we're prisoners. Our body is like taking, you know, taking, you know, when you go in the pool, and kids do this, they dunk someone else into the pool. That's what our body has been doing to our soul. Dunking it. And our soul's trying to get out. But it's dunked there, on the bottom, under the pool. And finally, for one day, the bully out of town and it's one day for us where we could accomplish more than we could accomplish any other day it's, it's as if our the shackles are temporarily removed from us so we have corresponding themes we have God established this as a day of being a day of atonement and us also, right, because God's close to us, therefore we're able to accomplish so much in Yom Kippur to run away from our imprisonment. Now, we have uh, one qualification, very, very quizzical, very strange, very seemingly puzzling 
statement we find in the Talmud. I'll say it just the way it is, and I've mentioned it once before. If someone sees semen on Yom Kippur, says the Talmud, he will die that year. Semen. Uh, if he doesn't die, he should know that he's a perfect tzaddik. He's a perfectly righteous person. If someone can explain that to me, I'll be very proud of it. Someone sees semen on Yom Kippur, he's going to die the year. But if he doesn't die, he should know he's a perfect tzaddik. Explains my grandfather. Yom Kippur is a day where the entire Jewish nation is refraining from pleasure. Someone who sees semen on Yom Kippur is someone who's saying, I am not part of the group. I am not part of the collective unit of the Jewish people. He disassociates himself from the general population. What he is in effect saying, I, on my own merits, can withstand scrutiny. I can be judged as an individual, not as part of the Jewish people. What happens to someone who's judged as an individual? What happens to someone who's judged as an individual? All their sins are highlighted. All the things that they did over that year are magnified. What happens when someone's sins are highlighted and magnified? They die because they don't pass the test. Most people can't pass the test on their own. The only reason why we're able to pass is because we're part of a group. The Jewish people, as a collective unit, can pass the test. But this guy's on his own. He's going to die. And if he didn't die, he should know that he's a righteous person because he was able to withstand the scrutiny on his own. So this teaches us about the importance of, of making sure that on, on, on Yom Kippur, but really throughout the whole year, we're part of the Jewish people. If the Jewish people are fasting, we're <coughs> fasting. As uncomfortable as it is, as much as you want a coffee or a cup of water, you're, you're part of the Jewish people. You want to be judged as part of the Jewish people. You don't want to be different, especially not on this day. This is the day where you might be judged. You don't want to try to rely on, your own, on, your, on, your, on, your, on yourself for this. Moving on to the next holiday. Sukkot. Five days after, after, after Yom Kippur, we have Sukkot. What do we know about Sukkot? If you open up the book, a book of Maimonides, uh, and he writes that on Sukkot there was tremendous joy. And interestingly, he does not write that there's a mitzvah to have joy. There's no mitzvah to have joy. It was a reality. On the heels of Yom Kippur, all the people feel like their house was just mopped. It's clean. You have a clean slate. Right? You do, it's a brand new car. New car smell. That's what Sukkot is. Sukkot is put right after the holiday of, of, of Yom Kippur. Why? Because Sukkot is a time of joy. What joy? Joy of relief. We, we, we withstood the test of Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah. Joy of victory. What are the mitzvahs of Sukkot? What are the mitzvahs? The four species, right? We carry a lulav. Lulav, the Talmud tells us, looks like a sword. We went to battle, and we came back victorious, and we shake our sword. Additionally, we have in the, the commentaries point out that the four species that we are, the mitzvah of, of, of circus, the four species represent the four kinds of Jews. There's four kinds of Jews. There are ignorant Jews 
who also do not engage in kindness. They are ignorant Jews who do engage in kindness. That's number two. There are wise Jews who do not engage in kindness, and then there's the best, the wise Jews that do indeed engage in, in, in kindness. The idea being that all these four kinds of Jews, for the purposes of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot, are united as one. You cannot have the Jewish people, one of them survive, or, or one of them thrive, one of them, the other one, uh, and not make it. During times of tragedy and times of great successes, Jewish people live and die as a group. We take all the Jews, the Jews, some better, some worse, we unite them as one. If someone does one of the mitzvah of the four speeches with only three speeches, because the ones that represent the bad Jews, I'm not touching them, he, he, he didn't fulfill the mitzvah. He didn't fulfill his mitzvah. And additionally, we are basking in the triumph of our victory. Now, what do I mean by that? How long have we been around for our nation? 3,300 years. About 3,300 years. Because that's when the Exodus from Egypt. That's what we'll get to see later. Exodus from Egypt marks, marks the beginning of a nation. And we are still around, even though we are very small in number, and we are still as impactful as ever. How is that possible? When the Romans and the Byzantines, and the Babylonians, and the Persians, right, and the Mamelukes, and the Seleucids, and the Assyrians, and the Macedonians, and the Ottomans are all gone. The ancient Egyptians are all gone. Every great civilization mm-hmm. that dwarfed the Jewish people, they're all gone. We're still around. How is that possible? That's what drives people crazy for the last 3,000 years. <laughs> That's true. The answer, the Talmud tells us the answer. The answer is Yom Kippur. <coughs> the answer is Yom Kippur. How is that? Oh, Yom Kippur. How is that the answer? The answer is, is that the Almighty gives every nation a certain quota of sin. That they, 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 they're free to go until they fill it up. Once they fill it up, their time on earth has come to pass. So the Romans were dominating. If you think the Americans right now are dominating the world, right? They don't hold a candle to the to, to 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 the Romans or to the Byzantines or to the Greeks or to the Persians or to the Babylonians. These were mighty empires that controlled the entire world, that had their culture and their language and everything domination over the entire the, the entire uh, civilized world. And yet they're gone. They just disappear. Poof. The answer is that they, 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 had, they had a certain amount of sin. And when the sin gets too too great to bear and becomes a point of no return, move on, and the next nation takes your place. But we, we too also have a quota. We also have a certain amount of sin that would make sin uh, forever permanent in ourselves and therefore demand our ouster. But every year, Yom Kippur comes, and we... And the sin level gets moved down to zero. It's kind of when you play those games, you know, those video games, and someone hits you, and like, and like your 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 illness level goes up, and then you get like medicine. You go pick up the medicine. Back to square one. Yom Kippur is the national medicine, and therefore it's a day of celebrate as a holiday of celebration. We have sukkahs afterwards. We're holding up our sword. We're we're realizing that we can accomplish this as a unity. And all the Jews are part of it. 
You know, if the the hole is under the ship, like that's what the sinking ship, right? Everyone goes down in a sinking ship, regardless of where the hole is. So that's Sukkis. And the last day of Sukkis is followed by Simcha Torah and Shmini Atzeres. And this is an individual holiday. And even though it's the day after Sukkot, there's not even one day in between, still it's a separate holiday. And the Talmud tells us the reason why, the reason why we have this holiday is because the Almighty says, it's hard for me to let you go. It's hard for me to let go of you guys. The Almighty, during the times of the high holidays, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot, the Almighty is close to us. We learned earlier what that means. It's a certain level of man disassociating from his physicality. But it's a special during this time of year. The mind is close to us, and then, he, and then he's not going to be clo- as close during the rest of the year. There's just one more holiday that we squeeze out. The mind is hard for me to leave. I have almost day for one more day. Let's move on. Hanukkah. Shmini Atzeres. Shmini Atzeres. Shmini means the eighth. Atzeres means holiday. Because it's the eighth day. Okay, let's move on to Hanukkah. We go till nine here? What time do we go till? What time does it usually go? Quarter to nine. I don't know. Okay, because I want to finish. Um, we're gonna go as long as you want. No, 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 no. I'm not. I don't go as long. I, I don't do that. I don't do that. I go as long as my allotted time, and I'll make sure that I fit, it, fit everything in. Well, what does that one say? We do nine nine forty six. Rabbi, I brought some stuff with me that we had talked about this week, and I'm sorry I'm late, but I got a couple of things just at the end. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Okay. Hanukkah. So we all know the story of Hanukkah. Alexander the Great died in the year 322 before the Common Era, and he had a tremendous empire, an empire unmatched and unrivaled by any other conqueror since. And it became pretty clear that there was not going to be a single leader who was able to control that entire empire. So pretty soon, the great empire that he built was split into the Macedonian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, and the Seleucid Empire. And a few year, years later, the, the Israel fell under the uh, control of the, of the Assyrians. And before you know it, they decided to enact laws, preventing Jews from living their Judaism, from studying Torah, from doing circumcision. And eventually the Jews got fed up. They revolted Matisyahu and their sons, the Maccabees, which is an acronym for Mikramocha Ba'elam Hashem, who was like you amongst gods, Hashem. And eventually, after a long and bloody 25-year battle, they kicked the Assyrians out. Miraculously, a ragtag team, a ragtag army against the mighty conqueror, the underdog prevailed, and we reestablished our sovereignty in the land of Israel. They got back to the temple. The temple was defiled. They couldn't find any oil. They found one flask of oil that was supposed to last for one day and it lasted for eight days. That's the story of Hanukkah. Now, what I want to analyze is, so we know, that's the story of Hanukkah. What are the, what's the mitzvah of Hanukkah? What's the mitzvah of Hanukkah? It means 
Well, but that's what it means. But what, what mitzvah do we do? We light the candles. We light the candles, the Hanukkah. Exactly. Now let me ask you a question. The fact that a small group of pious men were able to militarily destroy a mighty nation. Is that a miracle? Yes. Is that a more significant miracle than the oil lasting for eight days? Absolutely. The oil, it's, it was really, from a halachic standpoint, it was inconsequential without the oil was pure or impure. Why? Because too much of it's zero, and therefore impurity is permitted in a public setting. So they could have used impure oil as well. Why would the sages establish the mitzvah to commemorate this wonderful, wonderful event and series of events? Why would they take the seemingly more minor miracle as the as the one that we're gonna uh, we're gonna fashion a mitzvah out of, that's a major question, and there's many many wonderful answers. But one of the answers, one the one I want to share with you today, is that we are told by the Almighty Himself that the Jewish people will will remain an eternal nation forever, will be around forever. When we engaged in a war with the mighty Assyrian Greeks. That was in question. If we would have lost, we would have been destroyed. Therefore, the Almighty was bound by His promise that we should win the war. However, the fact that the other miracle, the miracle of the oil outlasting the one day that really it shouldn't last, that's a miracle the Almighty did not need to do. He did it just because He loves us. Just as a benefit. Just because He loves us. Hence, the rabbi said, this miracle, while seemingly compared to the other one, is not as important. But this demonstrates the Almighty's love for us. And therefore, what we're going to do when we light the candles, of course we're going to think about the fact that Jews were around forever, where the eternal nation will overcome anything. We also have to remember that the Almighty loves us. Don't lose sight of that. The Almighty does things for us, as we need to do. He's not bound by promise. He didn't promise Abraham that your children will have a menorah every day. He promised that they'll be around forever. That part he didn't have to give us. He gave it to us just because he loves us, and that's what we celebrate. The tenth day of Teves is a minor fast day that comes right after Hanukkah. And this, once again, is an example of a, of a fast day, a minor fast day, that uh, is representative of a small milestone in the, in the destruction of the temple. That was the time where the siege was laid uh, by Nebuchadnezzar, by the, by the Babylonians uh, uh, around Jerusalem. Um, and that, be, that began, so to speak, the destruction of the, of the temple. Uh, I'm going to skip number eight. Let's go to number nine. On uh, number nine, we have the fast of Esther and the miracle of Purim and Passover. So I want to talk about Purim and Passover as one holiday. How so? Purim was about redemption. Some of them are called festivals. Well, holiday or festivals. I use Did the word interchangeable. Both, yes. The festival meant something different. Well, yes, because Sukkis uh, and, and Sukkis and. Pesach and Shavuos are regalim; they're festivals. Well, with the festivals, it's just a, it's a, it's a more it's a, it's a uh, more encompassing holiday, basically. Mm-hmm. So that's ho- when the Jews are required to go to the temple. That's correct. That's why they're called festivals. Yeah, but it, yeah, but for our purposes, they're holidays or festivals, whatever. But that's a good point. You're you're absolutely correct. During the time of Purim, 
the Persians, right? We know the history, about 2,400 years, right between the, between the first and temple and second, second temple era. Right? Was, uh, after the first temple was destroyed, it was only seven years later where Ezra came back and reestablished the temple. Now, after the second temple was destroyed, it's almost 2,000 years already. We haven't yet re- ha- you know, have, have, uh, we haven't had it reestablished. But in the interim, the Jews were living in Persia, and there was a plan hatched to get to destroy all of them. And uh, as we know, Esther and Mordechai and the whole story in Purim, how they were able to be, they were able to overcome. And not only that, they weren't destroyed; they were able to do as they pleased with their enemies. They were redeemed. Passover was when the Jews were redeemed from Egypt. Hence. These times are auspicious for redemption. And we can have personal redemption as well. And the mitzvahs of Pesach, for example, are about redemption. Now, the Jews were in Egypt. Now, as a slave, thank God, we don't really know what slavery is, but a slave is totally one-track-minded. The slave is an individual whose entire essence is serving a master. They have no freedom. That's all they do. Jews in Egypt were slaves. The only person, the only entity we thought of was Pharaoh. Exodus chapter 6, Moses comes to the Jewish people and says, I'm going to take you out of here. I'm going to take you out of Egypt. And they weren't able to listen to him. They rejected him. They were so enslaved to Pharaoh, they couldn't imagine a different kind of life. That was the only life they knew. That was the only kind of life that they could even imagine. To them, they were prisoners of their own mind. They created limitations that didn't exist. So much so were they enslaved to Pharaoh. What happens? The Almighty redeems them. What happens to their slavery? Well, that's the mistake. No, no, no. It doesn't go away. It was transferred. It was transferred. Now their slavery, the dedication they had to Pharaoh, now we are servants of God. And that's redemption. think of that as enslavement. Well, that's true. That's why, as I said, servants, yes. And that's why, and that's the greatest redemption. There's nothing more liberating than knowing you're doing what the Almighty wants you to do. And I'll say even further, this might be unsettling for some, Every human is essentially enslaved. How's that? We're enslaved to our whims. The Almighty gives us whims and and wants and desires and needs that are constantly pulling at us. All of our negative character, each one of our negative character, our anger, our impatience, our our, our laziness, these are we're all enslaved. We can't act any other way. If you're if you're a lazy person and you don't act unlazy. You're just lazy all the time. Well, you're enslaved to your laziness. You don't have the choice to live a different life, so to speak. You're enslaved to your laziness. If someone has uh, unnatural desires, someone wants, just loves food, just wants to eat food, not there's anything wrong with that. The point is, is that you are needy. You need your food. You're dependent. You're a slave. Whatever your desire tells you to do, you'll do. Because that's what you're, that, that, that you're enslaved. Matzah and the holiday of Passover 
It's all about ridding ourselves of the wrong kind of enslavement. We're told that matzah, the word matzah, and the word chametz, matzah is unleavened bread, and chametz is leavened bread. Matzah is unleavened bread, and chametz is leavened bread. And I'll speak a little louder to to counteract the uh, air conditioning. Yeah? If you spell these words in Hebrew... Both words have a mem, matzah, chametz. Both of them have a tzaddik, matzah, chametz. So they both share two letters. What's the other letter? Matzah has a hey, and chametz has a chet. Now, what's the difference between a hey and a chet? Very, very, very little. Right? The hey looks like this. And the chet looks like this. It has the opening. That's the only difference. Matzah and chametz are almost the same things. They have the same ingredients. Flour and water. There's just a little bit of a difference. A little bit of a rise. A little bit, a little bit of a rise and you have the chametz. That, that's the difference. And the idea being, two people could be doing the same thing they're doing the same thing. It's the same thing. It's, it's flour, it's water, the same thing. One of them is doing a mitzvah and one of them is doing a sin. How so? When someone, let's say, engages in a certain activity, let's take their common activity, drinking water. To them, it could, they could be doing it for one of two reasons. Either they're drinking water because they're thirsty. Essentially why they're doing it is because to them their thirst is something which is important. And therefore, they want to uh, address it. Seems pretty benign. The other person is saying, I am drinking water so I could serve the Almighty. He is doing a tremendous mitzvah. To him, there's only one boss. He is truly dedicated to the Almighty. They look the same. Chametz Masa, they're almost the same. Same ingredients, spelled the same almost. A little bit of a difference. One of them has a certain association, a certain slavery, shall we say, to a certain desire, and the other one is just for God. And two people can be living the same lives. You look at them from the outside, you won't know the difference. It's about a person's intentions deep inside. To him, does he have this association with other things having their own realm? Is there any value to anything else besides for God or not? Now this is a very high level. This is a high, high level. So I'm going through it real quickly. Because A, I want to finish on time. But B, because it's, it's a very high level, which I don't think I'm up to. I don't think, I don't know if I know anyone who's up to that. The idea being that in the ideal sense, a person should have only one goal. And everything that person does is all directed towards that goal. What's that goal? Serving the Almighty. Being a true slave to the Almighty. Nothing else has its own value. It's flat. Everything's flat. Right? You don't even see the matzah. It's like those iPad commercials where they put the, the, the pencil in front of the iPad. You, you don't even see the matzah. You don't see the iPad. The matzah is inconsequential. It's just a means to an end. It's just a means of serving God. Chametz on the other hand, you look at it, look at it, look at the bread. This is a something. This, this, this is a goal on its, on its own. So when we eat the matzah, we have to think about the redemption of the Jewish people of yesteryear 
It's a time which is sufficient for redemption now. The Talmud tells us that the Jews were redeemed in Nisan and will be in the future redeemed in Nisan as well. But additionally, it's a time for us to be redeemed from our own individual whims, petty desires. It's a time for us to acquire willpower, to overcome our character, and to assign God as the one goal in our life. Moving on to the Omer. So we have the bridge between Pesach and Shavuot is the 49 days of the Omer. It's a time where several bad things happen to Jewish people. Chief among them is the Jewish people and the great institution of Torah that Rabbi Akiva, the great Rabbi Akiva had, that was destroyed. And Torah and the perpetuation of the Torah and the continuity of the Torah was in doubt. Therefore, it's time of national mourning. Now they stopped dying in Lagba Omer. Lagba Omer, therefore, is a time of relief and celebration. Lagba Omer also doubles as the yard site, as the day of the death of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the author of the Zohar. Hence, it's also a time, uh, it's also the pinnacle of Jewish mysticism. And now, my rant on Jewish mysticism. Unfortunately, Jewish mysticism has gone the way of the infomercial. (coughs) This one pill. Eat as much as you want. Drink as much as you want. Never exercise. Just this one pill, magic solution to all your uh, fitness issues. Quick fix solution for spirituality doesn't work no more than quick quick fix solutions to physicality. Jewish mysticism has its place, but in truth, some people use it as a crutch. They hear things which sound exciting, they hear things which sound deep and profound. They think that they know what they're talking about. When in fact they're defiling the most, uh, the deepest of 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 of, of the uh, of the Torah's ideas. You, Rabbi, you, say, you keep saying Jewish mysticism. Is that just separated from? Well, Kabbalah, Kabbalah. I thought no, Jewish I, mysticism. I, I know that, but just the way you're, you're the, saying it is. Like, it means it's the Jewish, the the Torah regarding mysticism. I'm sorry. So, Lava Omer, with regard to mysticism, what did you say? It I said it's 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 the it's sort of the pinnacle of, of mysticism. But for us, we don't have a part in that. We're not there yet. Yeah. Okay. My grandfather said this probably a thousand five hundred times. En lanu esek binistarot. We have no business engaging in the hidden parts of the Torah. That's what he said. And if he has no business engaging in it, we certainly have no business engaging in it. My rant has concluded. That's very interesting, though. I know some people teach about that, and I do not agree with it. Why is it there if we're not allowed to... It's there for people that are supposed to learn it, not us. That's why you don't find about it in the, so in, in the oral Torah. special people. Even yes. Are special gifted people like some of the people we were talking about the other day. 
Oh, oh, oh. You know, spe- you know that, that, was, that, was a, that was an epic rant. It was indeed. But you know what I'm t- Is that what you mean? Is that I, the special What I mean people, like is... Monodies, people were... Exactly. Okay, okay. I mean that this is way beyond our scope. Okay. I, I'm really glad to hear you say that because I once got into kind of an argument with my husband. <coughs> and in his mind, there was, there's no such a thing. It's like somebody started this big rumor and that we should... You, anytime you hear about it, he says, you shouldn't listen, you shouldn't pay any attention, it's too hard for me. He could not accept that there was such a thing. As and he was way more religious than me. As, as what? There's no such thing as Jewish mysticism? mysticism well, there clearly fact. is such a thing. That, that, that's not in question. The point is, is that there's a thing, but it's not for us. We're not there yet. It's quantum physics for the person who doesn't, you know, for the, you know, for the toddler. You don't teach quantum physics to the toddler. You teach him the wheels on the bus go around and around. That's what we're holding. <laughs> I like that. You like that, okay? Yeah. You well, did. Then what did you think of that? You could use it. What did you think of the rabbi that we heard the other night? What do you mean? Well, his Which, whole thing was, oh, well, was listen, giving us... I, 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 I do believe that everything he said was 100% correct. Um, he didn't get into the nitty-gritty of it. He didn't talk about the Svirot, Malchut, Keter, Yesod, all those things. He didn't talk about that. What he really did was, actually, I don't think he mentioned any mystic ideas. He might have mentioned it in passing, but that wasn't the core of his, of his, of his, uh, of his message. You know, his core message was, was a serious approach to Torah, the fact that it's real, and the fact that we can't shirk uh, from our obligations. That's what he. That's what his his overarching message. He may have thrown in some other stuff about mysticism. It wasn't a class of mysticism. Nate, but I got out of it that he was trying to teach us that there were these messages, and he was trying. To yeah, but those them. those messages are in the Torah. It's not messages that are part of the tradition of the Kabbalists. Put it this way: anyone that teaches you Torah, sorry, scratch that. Anyone that teaches you Kabbalah doesn't know Kabbalah himself. And anyone who knows Kabbalah himself well, is not going to teach you. Okay. I want to say you, yeah. I mean me as well. No, I'm, not trying, I'm not trying to lecture. Yeah. Me so as well. Kabbalah centers and all that stuff. Oh, that's, just... that's for sure baloney. Yeah. No one was even talking about that. So it's, like a gimmick. Who, it's like a gimmick. Because they who follows it. You know, you got Madonna <laughs> and all these. You know, that, that makes it, it really makes it bad for us, though. Yeah, total nonsense. Yeah. Okay. Waste of time. Okay, that's my, my rant has concluded. Normal conversation can now be resumed. Okay. And let's move on to the next holiday. That's the holiday of Shavuos. What happened in Shavuos? The Jews received the Torah. Correct? Mm-hmm. Right? Right? Well, what'd they get? What'd they get? Well, they have the Ten Commandments. Check. What else did they get? But that's, but that's not when they got the writ, the oral Torah. That was that the oral Torah too, though. Really, Moses was up the mountain for forty days. Everyone says it's like everyone says. Well, we got the Torah. Well, what, what did we get? So we got the Ten Commandments. We got, the we got all the laws. And it began a year-long project of national study. They got to Mount Sinai. They didn't leave for a year. What did they do for the entire year? I didn't know that. Yes. What did they do for the entire year? Well, actually, 10 days short of a year. What did they do for the entire year? They studied. What did they study? The oral Torah. What's the oral Torah? The laws of the Almighty. 
Hence, Shavuos really has two themes going on. Theme number one, Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments as in the core of the Torah, but also the method of how we got the Ten Commandments was in the, method, was in the process of national revelation. All the Jewish people experienced prophecy in Mount Sinai. The Gentiles have it wrong when they portray Mount Sinai as being Moses speaking to God. When in fact, God spoke to all the Jewish people. Read the book of Exodus. It says it clearly, black on white. Shachor al-Gabilavan, as they say in, in, in Israel. Black on white, with no room for ambiguity. The entire, the entire Jewish nation heard and saw and experienced at Mount Sinai. That's the first thing we're, that, we're, that we're reliving. It's a time for faith reinvigoration. Additionally, it's a time for us to get serious about a year-long project of Torah study. The Jewish people did. They started their journey of learning the whole Torah. And that's why people like Susan and my kids and everyone I know, when they say, what happened on Shavuos? Jews got the Torah. What do you mean? They got it over the course of a year. No, but they began the project on Shavuos. Therefore, we consider as if they got the whole Torah on Shavuos as well. Why is that? Because the way it works in Judaism, one small step with a plan, a step and a plan, is the whole Torah. You got to Mount Sinai, you just settle down. You're ignorant. You're as ignorant as a newborn baby. You got the Torah. What do you mean? You began the journey. Beginning the journey with the goal in mind, you say, I'm going to get that. I'm going to get there. It's already now considered as if you, you reached your goal. Jews did indeed get the Torah on Mount Sinai. And therefore, it's a time for us as well. When we reach Mount Sinai, when we reach, I'm sorry, when we reach Shavuos, it's a time for us to make that decision. To buckle down. To hunker up to settle down, whatever term you want to use, to get serious about our Judaic pursuits and to get serious about it. This is what we are here for. We're only on planet Earth for what? 70, 80, 90, 100, 150 years? A tiny little speck in time. We're here with a mission. A mission is to get as much Torah as possible into our bones. To get as much and many mitzvahs as possible into our satchel to get as much good deeds and character improvement as possible into our repertoire. <coughs> That's what we're here for. Shavuos is the time for making that plan, for starting anew. That doesn't mean that now you shouldn't start anew. But that's what happened when the Jewish people did it, when the Jewish people were there. And that's a time, and, and that's a time especially suited for doing that. Moving right along, we have the three weeks between the 17th day of Tammuz and Tishabav. During the seventh day of Tammuz, so there's a little bit of a mistake on the, on, on the sheets here. Um, during the seventh day of Tammuz, five things happened. Right? Moses brought the tablets because he saw the Jewish people. Uh, uh, the Jewish people were. Um, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. Sorry, he's, they're right. Scratch that. Uh, five bad things happened on the seventh day of Tammuz, and that's why it is a minor fast day. Uh, primarily, the uh, the 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 they breached the temple, they breached the the walls of Jerusalem before destroying the temple. So 
what happened was they breached the walls. They had the siege. Remember, we had the siege on the 10th day of, of Tevez. So a year and a half later, at the 7th day of Tammuz, comes out in the summertime, they breached the walls, and then they began the rape, pillage, and plunder with a whole heavy dash of murder uh, until it culminated in natural destruction of the temple three weeks later. So therefore, these three weeks, which are bookended by fasts, a minor fast on the seventh day of Tammuz and a major fast on the ninth day of Av, are days of national mourning, of national reflection, of time, like we mentioned earlier, to reflect on the sorry state of Judaism, San Temple. Judaism without a temple. Ninth day of Av, the, both temples were destroyed. Other numerous negative <laughs> things happened, like the liquidation of the uh, of the uh, Warsaw Ghetto, for example, in modern times. But uh, literally, every major catastrophe happened to Jewish people has happened to this day. Uh, the uh, the expulsion from Spain was on the ninth day of 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 of, uh, of B'Av and many many other national calamities. It's the worst day in the Jewish calendar. It's a day that we dread and mourn, and we hope will once again uh, be uh, be removed from the annals of history. Because when Mashiach comes, and when the Jewish people <coughs> move into the next uh, phase of existence, this uh, period of mourning will, uh, will, will end. And the last thing is we have the month of Elul. Now remember, we talked about all the beginning of our discussion. We talked about Rosh Hashanah. Renewal. Reinvigoration. Right? You're a new man. The world is a new purpose. God's kingdom is going to be renewed. The month before has traditionally been a month where the Jewish people dedicate themselves in preparation. Like cakes and war and plans, spirituality must be prepared. You can't just jump into something and say, where's my cake? You have to actually make your cake. You have to prepare it. You can't consume it before it's prepared. So, this month is a month which traditionally been dedicated towards preparation. And that's why in the month of Elul, that's going to be upcoming in September, this uh, is a time where we're going to have special classes in Torch dedicated towards preparing for the high holidays, preparing for renewal, preparing for reinvigoration. And that's the Jewish calendar. I hope I have infused it with some meaning, some information that maybe you didn't know, some inspiration that perhaps you will find useful. And the goal is, like we mentioned at the onset, the goal is to take the rituals, to take what we do know about the holidays and festivals and connect that with the meaning and the roots of those holidays. And if we could do that, you know, we're not going to be chewing crackers. Mm-hmm. Well, I mentioned at the beginning, you missed it. I'll say it again. That... Uh, you could have one guy who's eating matzah, and to him, he's 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 by the exodus. He's there. He's reliving it. The other guy's just chewing crackers. Yeah. The goal is for us to not just chew crackers. We want to relive the experience. You can't relive the experience if you don't know what you're trying to relive. You don't know what special spiritual energy to try to tap into in that day. So that was the goal. I hope it was successful, and I wish y'all luck with the cont- continuation of the Barnabat Mitzvah program. And I hope you find it most useful. Yes, Betty. Okay. We had talked about uh, doing a bar mitzvah.